Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Kristen Lavelle for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is April 4th, 2019, and this has been recorded at the Midtown offices of the New York Public Library. Hello, Kristen. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to be talking with you. Yes. Could you um, start off and just introduce yourself, however you'd like? Um, my name is Kristen. Um, wow, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> um, are there any identities that are particularly important to you? That Identities? Um, her, she mm -hmm. is a woman. Mm. You know, excellent. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Yonkers, New York. What was it like? Um, Yonkers. <laughs> um, it's right above the Bronx, so we were really close to New York City. Um, growing up there was interesting. I'm all my family and. Friends are still up there to this day. Um, I guess growing up was a little interesting for me also because it was evident that I was uh, different. <laughs> so I would constantly get, you know, teased and harassed for sounding like a girl or something, or I was too feminine and, um, so I got in a lot of trouble in school. Um, I was constantly fighting and getting suspended, protecting myself and my identity at the time. Um, yeah, and that was all the way up until high school. Then I left and I came to New York City. What was your family like? like what did your parents spend their well, time doing? My family, and how I was raised is different than your regular family model. Um, my mother, was a t she had me as a teenager. She got pregnant and had me at 15. My father was a little older. He was um, a senior or something like that in, in school and then went off to the military. Um, so I was raised collectively between my mother, my grandmother, my godmother, and my aunt and other family, extended family members. Was your family from the South or from out of the country? Originally from the mm -hmm. South. Uh, my great-grandmother moved up to New York City first and then migrated to Yonkers. Uh, so my grandmother and my great-aunt were born here in Brooklyn. And some family members from my mother's side of the family are still here. Her father's family also lives in Brooklyn. So technically we're New Yorkers. You know, but, um, yeah, well. And did your mom work at all? Oh, she did. Um, that was the, the, the whole thing about my mother is that, you know, having the family come in and, and help take care of me while she was so young, she was able to graduate high school and, you know, find work and support me and my, then my other two sisters came along. You know, but I give, if anything, that is one of the, the 
big things about my mother that I loved was that, you know, she had the ability to care and provide for us despite her circumstances. What sort of work did she end up doing? Uh, well, she went to business school after. I remember, like, going to class or going to the school with her one time. Um, but when then she ended up working for um, Precision Bell Corporation, which is the company that produces aerosol cans. And she was working there for a number of years. Oh, careful <laughs> on the table. Um, and so you, you had some trouble as a kid? Yeah, I did. I was um, very rebellious. Um, did not take to authority. Um, I think in trying to understand myself, people were already putting labels on me because of how I was. Um, and I didn't necessarily, not that I didn't agree with the labels, it was the fact that you were trying to tell me who I am before I can even define for myself, you know? And so I was very rebellious in that aspect of like, you know, people teasing me and calling me names and I just, I wasn't the type to be bullied. <laughs> Do any particular stories stand out from you, for you from that time? Oh my God, I, I remember them all, <laughs> like all of them and the reasons why, you know, um, for me, no one was exempt from, you know, being attacked by me in terms of if you're bullying me. So um, I remember one time, you know, this one boy, he was, you know, teasing and bothering me. And I spent the whole year dealing with his mess. And then um, it was like the last few weeks of school and I just snapped. I like turned over the desk and through chairs and through paint and, you know, and there were a few times I had those outbursts in the classroom or in the school where I got pulled into the principal's office or I had to, you know, get suspended and my mother had to come up to school, you know. Um, it was a constant thing. And I, I have just been processing this now as to, like, the times that my mother had to come up to school because of my behavior. And in those times, teachers and, you know, they didn't really know how to classify or define us, so they put us in special classrooms for, you know, which I've noticed, like speaking to other people that I grew up with that I was in school with or whatever, that when we are grappling with these things, that we are the, the problem, you know? And so they put me in a classroom for emotionally disturbed children. But then it was just like, I'm not really emotionally disturbed. I'm disturbed by the fact that I am constantly being harassed on a daily basis. You know what I mean? And then I have no choice but to lash out. So it was difficult in school maneuvering because then, like, if I excelled in a certain study or something, it was like, okay, well, she's in this classroom, but we're going to put her there. And, you know, so I, I took jumbled courses. It was really weird. You know, and then when I got to junior high school and high school, I just didn't go. Or, you know, I was busy having fun with friends. And then one time we got caught 
um, cutting school in this park not too far from school, and it was a bunch of deans. And um, the deans collected us and lined us all up in front of the front of the school. But we had an amazing teacher. I'll never forget him, Mr. R. And um, he came into the social worker's office and was like, look, I'm going to make a deal with you. And probably my mother would, our parents never knew this, but you know, we got caught cutting and he was like, this is the deal. We won't tell your parents that you're cutting, but you have to join this program, right? And so I was like, oh, you're not going to tell them if I join this program? So I did. And it was an alternative program. So what they had us do was we went to school for our core subjects, right, in the morning. And then after lunch, or during, like, when lunch starts, we would go to the hospital, and we volunteered. So we were getting, like, you know, which is so funny, because one of the people that I had did it with, she still works in a hospital to this day. It's so funny. But that's how we were able to pass. And it was so much a better experience, like, cramming it in the morning session and then getting to do something else during the rest of the day really meant a lot and it it opened my eyes to like a lot of things working in the hospital for an entire school year you know that was a big deal I got to see a lot of things how did it change you well dealing with the people and like pushing the gurneys around and talking to the patients um the first time I've seen a dead body in the morgue you know, it was the relationships that were built and the experience, you know. What uh, brought you joy or what was fun when you were growing up? Well, it gave me a sense of purpose that it wasn't just about the everyday of school life and dealing with harassment and other people's bullshit. You know, it was like these people are sick. Some people die. You know, it really woke me up and into how, like, the world is you know it was beginning like there was bigger things and what was going on and you know junior high school and did you ever encounter queer people or trans people I, in the in yonkers i did i did actually um and some of it is not all good i and, and you know when i was 16 i had my first kiss and i'll never forget it was during, we used to do the March of Dimes. And it was like Walk America or something like that. And we like do this 10 mile thingy. And I had a crush on this guy in my school. And we ended up having, I ended up having my first kiss. And, and, and um, but, um, he started to hang out with some other queer folk. And, you know, there were rumors and stuff going around. And it was just craziness. You know, like, people were being outed, and it was just a lot. Um, but my first encounter with a trans woman was one girl that they were hanging out with named Sheena. And I'll never forget her. She was just so over the top and, like, just... And we were all gagging at the fact that she was a transsexual. But, um... I started to um, go to Center Lane in Westchester, and then I met a few other trans people. What is Center Lane? Center Lane is, um, it was an LGBT center. It was Center Lane was for the loft. 
you know? And the center, center lane was for young people. And I met a lot of queer folk there and LGBT folk. And I stayed there for a while. I kind of miss everybody and wonder where everybody is. Um, so that also helped with identifying and, and being close and, and, and comfortable with who I was as a person. But the journey to transitioning was still, you know, I was grappling with my levels of femininity and grappling with the fact that I was indeed a woman, but I was not transitioned. Um, it was obvious that I was a woman growing up, you know, like people knew I was a woman before I did. And that was the thing. <laughs> that was the thing. And so um, when I left home, because I was just grappling with so much, I had a boyfriend at the time that I felt I was competing with other women for. Um, or his attention for that matter. Um, and I just couldn't take it anymore. I needed to find myself. I needed to get out of there. I needed to explore the, the world. I knew that there was more to it than that. When I started working as a messenger, I started work, 16 was a big year for me. <laughs> when I, when I, um, started working, I was doing messaging work. And the messaging worker required me to come to New York City. And I would go to all the businesses and stuff throughout Midtown, or throughout Manhattan in general, and pick up, I was working for this, this, this police associations thing, right? And um, I would come and I would come down and collect the checks and stuff and then bring them back to the office. And um, I fell in love with New York City. I was like, I want to live there. This is where I, I feel I need to be. And so at 17 and a half, I ended up leaving home. I got into a big fight with my mother's husband at the time. And it was really bad. It was really bloody, messy. Um, he disrespected me. He used the F-bomb on me and... Everybody that knows me knows that the F-bomb is a really nasty trigger for me, that um, nice things don't happen, you know? And so we got into a, a nasty fight, and I ended up leaving home. And I came to New York City, and, you know, I was still a young person, so I stayed at the Covenant House. And um, the Covenant House changed everything for me. That is when I began to transition. I met lots of trans and LGBT folk when I went through there that pretty much guided me on the path to transition. But in those times, it was a lot different. You know, this is like the summer of 90, 97, 98, you know, well, yeah, 98, the summer of 98, the winter of 97. And, um... I remember Covenant House corralling all of the LGBT youth together. Like, they were keeping a very close watch on us because usually their time frame is like 30 days. And I realized that I was there for like three months. And it wasn't just me. 
you know? And at that time, a lot of young LGBT folks were put in the mental health wing of Covenant House. And I had came to New York. I started working. I got a job at Cola Cafe, which is now where the Reuters building is. And I'll never forget because when I used to see the awning there, I would just, like, I've made it. I live in New York. I work in New York City now, you know, but I was still in the shelter. It got a lot because, you know, dealing with Rowdy Street youth, <laughs> it was just always like, you know, something going on. And, um, but I remember all the people that I had met there and some of them are some, some of them are still friends to this day. Um, could you say more about how, what Coven House was overall and then how, how they related to queer and trans people there and then how queer and trans people dealt with it? Right. Um, that is a lot. (laughs) So at the time, and I was going to get there, but um, at the time, Covenant House, there were a lot of LGBT people coming, but it wasn't necessarily LGBT friendly all of the time. I think at that time people were, you know, because the influx of LGBT youth coming in, were really trying to grapple with, you know, our presence and our culture. And, you know, how we are, you know, as people, like the, you know, flamboyance of, you know, all of us, you know. It was a lot, you know. And like I said, I met some really good friends that I'm still friends with to this day. I think, like, you know, when I first encountered other trans people and and learning how we, our means of survival, you know, I felt like, at the time before I transitioned, that I was blessed that I was able to find work and, you know, and try to make ends meet, even though I was in this situation. And um, other young people struggling with how they were going to move forward in their lives, you know, it was hard, you know. I remember when I met my gay mother, so to speak, Kashmir. And there was, you know, there was a bunch of us. There was me, Kashmir, Sadie, um, Celia. There was a bunch of us. Like, I'll reveal more as I go along because some of them are still in my life. But, um, you know, I remember Kashmir seeing me and she wanted to pluck my my eyebrows. I remember Miss Jackson used to always suck her thumb and get on my nerves. You know, it was just like so many people, you know. And, um, but I let her pluck my eyebrows. But then, you know, we were only allotted there a certain amount of time. And so it was trying to transition me out. So I was working and they tried to get me into another transitional living situation. And this was still right before I transitioned, like, like started to actively transition. Like maybe a few months (laughs) before I made the final decision of that's what I wanted to do, you know? And, um... I remember there was like a good six month period that it was like from, I left there like in January. And then I, between January and I'd say April, May-ish, 
of 97, well, 98 now, going into 98, I was staying at the Jane Street Hotel in Greenwich, in the village. And it's so weird to me now that I look back is that I did not, I lived there for six months and did not even know half of the things that were going on in that area at the time. I guess like I stayed in the vicinity of the hotel. Like, if you do you know anything about like the Jane Street and you know the pod rooms and not everyone who's listening will know. So <laughs> tell us. All about well, it. the the Jane Street back in the day was a godsend. You know, it was just like one hundred and thirty five dollars for a week for three weeks. You know, you and then you have to switch your room. You know, and there was it was a hotel where um, artists would be. Like, I remember Michael Stipes was there one time. And then knowing the history of the place, too. The um, the Jane Street is where the Titanic survivors went to after the Titanic disaster. And I didn't know that history until one day I was looking on the walls. And then the other thing that makes the Jane Street so dear to me <laughs> is that the fact that um, at the time that I was staying at the Jane Street, Hedwig and the Angry Inch was in the theater. And I had the... <laughs> I had memories of John Cameron Mitchell coming down the stairs after getting dressed and then listening to the music as I would come in or, you know, and you know out front or something and looking at the people lined up to come in and see Hedwig the Angry Inch. <sighs> My life is just so weird. So um, I stayed there for six months and I was working at Amy's Bread in um, Zando's at the time. What were you doing there? Oh, I was a, a panini maker. A panini maker. And um, I remember I couldn't take it anymore. Um, I needed assistance. And I knew Covenant House had a transitional living program called Rites of Passage. Um, so I had to fight my way to get in there. I remember, you know, look, I've been living in this hotel for six months. All my money is going to that. And all I'm living off of is panini and biscottis. You know, I need some assistance. And I had gotten in. It was close to my birthday. Close around this time of year. And um, I was super excited and, you know, I got to move in and it was so much better because you get two years there and your rent goes into savings and so you can, you know, have a cushion to fall back on and stuff. And um, when I got there, who did I see? Cashmere and Sadie. And I was like, oh, well, y'all made it here before me. And so, um, we continued our friendship and stuff, and then that's how I met Elizabeth, and that's, and we connected with Celia, and there was just so many people. Our room, 924, I'll never forget, became like the mecca of homeless LGBT youth within Covenant House or in the RLP program. Like, that is where we all congregated and stuff, and... I have so many fond memories. I had so much fun. You know, I think about it and I wouldn't take them back for anything. You know, um, it was like the catalyst to my independence, you know. 
And then there was Brandy, and there were just so many people that I I just will never forget. You know, um, not to say that times were always easy either, you know. I think when I made the decision in the summer of 1998 to transition, things began to change. And I began to really see how the world disenfranchises trans people. You know, um, even though I was very feminine, the dynamic changed when I began to transition. Um, I remember when I was still working at Zando, that was supposedly gay-friendly, mind you. And they were looking for waitstaff, and cashmere was sex-working. And I kind of felt bad for her, and she wanted something different. And so I advocated to get her a job. And I brought her in for an interview and stuff. And at the time, cashmere was very passable. But what I think it was that she would look better than the other waitress that was there, and that became the problem. You know, so I noticed that after that interview, I had gotten taken off the schedule for like a week. And I'm like, what are y'all doing? You know, oh, oh, we forgot to, you know, and I'm just like, what? Then my hours started to dwindle and then I had no job. So I was like, okay. So then I did find another job. I was working at Coffee Grind. It was dead smack in the middle of the meatpacking district. And so at the time, you know, I was working there. I would wear like camisoles and, and like, you know, flare bottom jeans were becoming the style again. And so I would wear camisoles and give the very Kevin Aviance type look with the bald head and some makeup on or something, you know? And, um... I think at the time I started messing around with um, the hormones. At the time it was Premarin. And we used to go down to Chi-Chi's to get it, you know. There was a person at the door and you give them some coin. They would take a list, you know, and then they would come back with the Premarin pills. You'd go back the next, you know, next few days to see if your prescription was ready. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Where was Chi-Chi's? Oh, it was... um. Right next to the PATH train, that bar, which was a legendary black um, LGBT bar in the center of, Chris, you know, Christopher Street. Um, back in those days, those types of bars and things were still open. Like, I remember uh, Two Potato and Keller's around the corner, but nobody, well, I never really went there. And I was still kind of too young to get into those places. <laughs> but, um, I remember being outside and in the vicinity. You know, um, I remember that. And then, um, working at Coffee Grinds. Now, Coffee Grinds was in the middle. Like, it's where Patis is now. Or where the Sephora is. Or something. But, uh, Covenant House R.O.P. at the time was on 17th Street. And, um, so, it was, like, right around the corner from home. And... I had full reign over the shop, but one of the things that concerned me because I had trans friends was that I was not to allow any of the trannies into the store. And um, I was pretty defiant 
And I didn't think that that was right to deny somebody access to the door because they were a tranny. It didn't make any sense to me. And and if I'm the one managing the store and I'm here the majority of the time by myself, I can let whoever I want in. You know, and I remember one of my favorite customers was Body Audie Josie. I'm going to her Body Audie Josie because Josie would come out with these, you know, with her gear on, she would have the heels on, and she was like, do I look real loca? And she would shake her bubbies, and you know, and she would come into the store all the time, and she would order hot chocolate. She would have her little hot chocolate, and she would have me play on the radio, Brandy's Never Say Never album, and her favorite song was Sitting on Top of the World. I'll never forget those days. And I would let Josie sit and rest. Like, girls walking around in them heels all damn day. You know what I mean? And she's out here working. Why, why doesn't she deserve a hot chocolate? Why can't she sit down and rest for a little while as long as she's paying? The rumor around that time was that trans people were utilizing the stores and the bathrooms to pull tricks. And in my time in Coffee Ground, I've never seen that. I just can't. I've never seen it. And girls weren't necessarily running up into my store all the time either. You know? Um, but I was there for a number of months. And then um, it was during Pride, actually. It was during that week of Pride, 98. And, you know, Cashmere and Elizabeth and Celia were my friends. So, you know, I was closing the shop. You know, I turned on some music, as I'm able to do. But there was this one little queen who was jealous, and she reported that I was throwing this big old shindig and closed the store, and, and, and then she ended up with my job. But she peeled up out of drag. You know, so I was a little upset about that, because you sabotaged me, honey. But, um... <laughs> but, um, then it was, you know... Considering that I had already knew the beat and I was out there and people were making more money than me, <laughs> you know, it was becoming a little bit more lucrative, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go up in them and I'm going to work the beat, you know, and I made that decision, you know, and I'll never forget it was the realness girls at the time. And Cashmere was included among them. It was Cashmere, Cheeklet, Fendi, and somebody else. And they had the, they had a car rental or something. They were driving around. And it was me and Elizabeth, and we were riding with them. And they were like, okay, so we're going to let you out here on the straw, girl. You're going to come back, and you're going to make all this money, Miss Thing. Da, 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 da. Right? So we get out the car, and we get to work or whatever. And it was a fun night. Like, you know, I pulled a few dates. You know, we came back and, you know, it was always the come back home. The mission is to come back home and, like, what did you make? And then what we did afterwards, which was the very next day, we wait for the stores to open. And then we go shopping. Like, it was very, girls just want to have fun. So that was our girls just want to have fun moment. So then we were just vivid and we were making coins and we were all happy and, we would take trips to Central Park and rent a boat and smoke blunts in the in, in the um in the little lake or whatever. We would run into celebrities like one time me and Cashmere and Elizabeth ran into Brad Pitt. It was crazy. 
it was just so fun, you how, know. How much money would you make in a night? In those days, you would come home with a sufficient amount of money. You know, it was, um, yeah, it was a sufficient amount of money. And, like, I was able to have, like, you know, clothes and feed myself and pay my rent without stressing, you know, because, you know, we had to pay rent at RLP, you know. And so, and knowing that it also was a cushion. So what I was doing at the time was I was saving that money. I was saving the money via the rent and I would save money at a little safe. I had this little pink safe that I had and it had a little combination lock on it and I would save my money. And that was my main goal was to make the money to save to have a better life, you know? And, um, or the things that I never had because I had suffered for X amount of time with not having any money and trying to make ends meet, you know? So I was like, okay, you know, this is what I'm going to do. But life gets in the way again. And so as we began to dwindle off and I stayed in Covenant House for about like two and a half years and those two and a half years were wonderful. But now the real world is about to set in again. I had to leave. I had started working at, um, well, I had a few jobs. I worked at, and I'm skipping over a lot of stuff, but I'm going to get there. But, um, I was working at the new neutral zone and I was the youth leadership organizer. That was the last position I held there and peer coordinator. What was the new neutral zone? The new neutral zone was a space for young people. It was a drop-in center for LGBT youth. Now, there was a neutral zone before then that I'm hearing historically that people used to talk about, but that was a little before my time. The new neutral zone had gotten their new location on 16th Street, which is right across the street from Covenant House, RLP. And in that building was... um, also, the New York Peer AIDS Advocacy Coalition, which I was also a member of. Um, and in those times, yeah, I have to bring it back because that all correlates into the bigger picture. So during the time of me sex working and, you know, and doing those things, I had worked for New York Peer AIDS Advocacy Coalition, New Neutral Zone. Project Reach in the in Chinatown, um, and then we went from Project Reach. We had a group called Pro Radicals that ended up turning into Fierce, which is Fabulous Independent Educated Radicals for Community Empowerment. But that's another story. <laughs> but um, so. the sex working part and leaving when I was work, I was like just in Project Reach, my last year of Project Reach and I had to move out and so I moved to the Lower East Side. I was renting a room in a sub- the, the Lower East Side. But during my time at the new neutral zone and stuff, no, that was slightly after. So I'm going to back it up. Okay, so yeah. There was that time when I, when I really had to work sex work full time because then I had turned 21 and at the time programs were, once you turn 21, that's a wrap. 
They extended the program to 24 later on, but, um, yeah. So that kind of hit hard because now I had no access to youth programs. And, um, I was running this room and everything that I saved went into this room. And then I started getting arrested and spending time in jail. And, um, those realities hit. So, flashing forward, I was thinking I was about, oh God, 2000, that was 2000, 2001, I was 22. <laughs> I'm spooking my age now. But, um, so, that, 2000, 2001, um, I was on the street, hard body. I started doing cocaine. Um, yeah, I lost my friends through cattiness and other things that would break people up, you know, other people feeling, you know, better than or whatever the case may be. I became a loner, a lone wolf. And I was on the streets. But I still had the neutral zone. They upped the age to 24, so I was able to still come around and participate in certain things. And I remember right after I had was the youth leadership organizer and the shit hit the fan that um, we were to start a documentary. It was me and Crystal Port Latin, and we were on the hunt for Stonewall veterans. And I remember I found, like, I don't remember his name, but he used to drive the Stonewall. He was the owner of the Stonewall Mobile. And um, I remember seeing him throughout the years. Like, he was in Yonkers. I think he is from Yonkers, and that was the crazy thing. But um, when, when I left, a group of young people that were part of Fierce and Pro Reds, we were looking for these Stonewall veterans, and then we stumbled upon Sylvia Rivera. <laughs> and um, Sylvia Rivera used to be around us a lot in her final years. I remember coming into the neutral zone and seeing Sylvia there all the time, her telling stories, her giving me looks. <laughs> And I was scared that she was on to me, you know, like, oh, my God, she knows that I'm sniffing coke. Is it on, you know? <laughs> I used to always run from her, kind of, and go into the bathroom to sniff cocaine or get ready for the night. So when I think back on it, though, I kind of wish I paid attention a lot more. I knew who she was then, but... um. You know, there was transy houses open and some girls were going to transy house and oh, the stories I would hear that come out of transy house, so, you know, I wasn't ready for trans lesbians. <laughs> I'm not going there, you know, and I stayed on the streets. I didn't want to go to transy house and I missed the opportunity to know Sylvia better, you know, but we would see each other. And we would acknowledge each other. I marched with Sylvia Rivera during the Amanda Milan incident. 
I remember walking and I was right next to Octavia St. Laurent. She was singing like Shug Avery down 8th Avenue up to 42nd Street. I remember those days. And I didn't know that we were stepping into history, you know? And I had my own shit at the time that I was grappling with. And when I really look back on it, though, I think that it was because she saw herself in me for the most part and knew what I was going to do. She did know what I was going to do. She knew what I was going to do. You know? And now that I look back on it all, I'm like, now I understand why she would look at me that way. And I just wish I paid a little bit more attention because I was so caught up in my life at the time that I kind of was dismissive in terms of this is what I need to do and nobody cares about me, you know? And yeah. So I didn't get to spend as much time. Plus everybody was, you know, needed or wanted attention from her at the time. So yeah. But moving forward though, I was on the streets and in and out of jail um, still on drugs and I needed to get clean. Um, Sylvia passed away and I remember Kate Barnhart. Um, I got sentenced to Ward's Island because I had no place to live and so they put me there so they can keep track of me, I guess, or Whatever. The men's shelter on the yeah. one side. Yeah. And so I remember it was the day of Sylvia's funeral. And Kate went with me to check in to Ward's Island after the court date or whatever the case may be. And it was like around, you know, February. I ended up going to Ward's Island. And I would never stay there. I would go sign in and then I would go right back to 14th Street. I would even like walk over like the bridge thingy, take the subway. I got in trouble and the, the, the judge found out and she saw like you weren't sleeping there. And I recall you saying that you would never get caught with drugs because she overheard a conversation that I've never been caught with drugs. Right. But, um, I was high. I wasn't high. I thought I had enough window period for cooking. But um, I ended up in an testing positive and then I ended up having to go to jail for a few months. And um, in jail. <laughs> I mean, it was what it was. I mean, Rikers Island, Six Building. Lots of queens come in and out of there anyway, so it wasn't really as bad as I thought it was going to be, or the stories of, but I mean, I've had a few fights, and, you know, but the experience wasn't as horrific as I thought it would have been, or it depends on how you carry yourself, or to that matter, and I've always been kind of a fighter anyway. Um, 
I remember getting out. I remember getting acclimated into the community again. Then picking up and grappling again with drugs. Um, when I had the epiphany that I really need to give it up. I really need to stop and I need to clean up my act. I didn't want to be the age I am now I'm a sex worker. When I used to run into the older girls that used to tell me of the old days. And I was like, this can't be our life. There were a few girls that were murdered. I remember. Or the guy that I used to talk to. He was a, an older queen. He ended up murdered. Or when we lost Sugar Bear and he found her body parts. And what's his name? And I always, the fear began to cripple me of if something happens to me, will I just end up in Potter's Field? I really needed to reassess my self-worth at the time. So I needed to get clean. I remember talking. I, I had went home for a while and I stayed with my godmother. And it was three years, her last three years on earth. And dealing with family and my transitioning and, you know, sex working and making ends meet and people's disapproval of that, my addiction getting worse. It was when she got really, really sick and I knew she wasn't coming home and a violent incident took place in the house that I needed to pull it together. I remember a friend of mine from Fierce called me and told me about Sylvia's place. And um, that Kate was there, and now five years had passed <laughs> since I've seen anybody. So this is in the late 2000s now? This is about, right, because I was back and forth home and in and out of Rikers Island. That lasts about five years, so from like 2002, three, four, five. Like, I popped up at Sylvia's place in 2005. And, um... I stayed with my godmother for like three years, so about 2003, four, five, until she got sick and passed away. <sighs> I visited Sylvia's place to see Kate, because I hadn't seen her in going on five years, um, and we reconnected, and Kate, you know, um, connected me to services, like rehab. I needed to clean. I wanted to clean. I couldn't take it anymore. And I did, but then I got in trouble in the rehab and then couldn't go to the halfway house, so I was still homeless and still grappling with street life. But um, the young people, it was the young people that, now that I release it and I think about this, it was the young people that that lifted me up and they lifted me up when I didn't think I had anybody else left. I would go work the stroll at night 
and go to Sylvia's place in the morning and get breakfast. And then I have food stamp cards. I can tell some of the young people that I was friends with or that I was building a relationship with. We would spend the day together and I would, you know, use my food stamps and feed everybody. And after a while, people were like, oh, you should work here. You really want you to work here. And I'm like, I can't work here. I can't work here. And then one night, one of the counselors didn't show up. He was really stressing that she needed somebody to work there for the night. And I was about to go to the stroll. And then she was like, you could do it. And I did. And then I was in one night became two nights and then three nights and then I became a full time employee. And I did that for ten I did it for ten years. And it was some of the most rewarding times of my life. You know, that is where I met your friend Scout. Um What was Sylvia's place like? Huh? What was Sylvia's place like? A safe space for young people to go to, especially those that can make it in a regular shelter setting. Usually it's the most disenfranchised, those that are the most discarded and nobody wants to deal with. I was so happy that it was there. And I'm so happy for all of the experiences that I got to go there. And I'm so happy to work there and try to make Sylvia proud. Um, so many changes. Um, I'm just going to leave it that it was just... A good thing. I don't want to talk about <laughs> politics within or, and if anybody who knows me knows the story, so I'm not even going to go there. But I did my best, you know. Um, I had to deal with a lot, and making sure that the safe was, the space was safe. Um that the young people's needs were met in terms of, because people forget, you know, that our young people are out here struggling, that we don't have like spaces and things that we can truly be ourselves or thrive in. I always felt or made it a point and what was so important was that there were opportunities and that even though that this is the situation that you can thrive, you can be somebody, just like how if I was a nobody and I was able to work or find work or to 
elevate myself through my darkest hours that you can do it too. And that was the point. That was the whole point. And I didn't want anybody to to feel like they didn't or couldn't. So I centered my work around making sure that there were plenty of opportunities of enrichment and following in the work of what Sylvia wanted and the things that I learned from being under Kate Barnhart, you know. <sighs> but it was 10 years, 10 beautiful years. What, what clock was it on? Oh, it's on um, 36th Street mm-hmm. in Hell's Kitchen. Is it still there? Thankfully, it's still there. Um, it's still there, but not to the capacity in which I would like to see it. But it's still there. Um, I swear I feel I'm skipping over a lot, but I mean, yeah. It's funny how time flies, for one, and for two, how things change. I never thought that my life would lead me lead me to the path that I'm on now, or the things that I'm doing now. I was that girl in the village. You know, when I learned about Marsha P. Johnson... And I, I, I'm just able to relate to her struggle, you know, and all the information now that we get about her, so much of her life is so similar to mine. Like during the times of being on the streets, like part of the ways in which I was able to survive was sleeping in the movie theater, going to 14th street and making coins and then using some of that money to eat to sleep in a movie theater. I would buy disposable outfits or go to clothing swaps and stuff. You know? Or just being in the village in the meatpacking district and knowing that, like, during her times in, like, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and for me, during the late 90s, early 2000s, that nothing had changed. It was still the same thing. And even to this day, being a black trans woman is still difficult. Jenda just passed the other day. And now that I haven't been out of work now for going about like eight months, like an official job, an official job is what I'm talking about. It's still hard to find work. Education and opportunities for trans people are still very limited, you know? And so these are things that I still grapple with today. And now that I'm the age that I'm at, you know, but luckily I've had opportunities and things. So right now I may not be in any of the organizations, you know, but I'm, I got into acting and I don't know if it's safe to say I'm a film and television actress now, you know, I'm a producer and I produced a film Called the Garden, co-produced a film called The Garden Left Behind, which is about a trans woman named Tina. She's an immigrant and she's navigating life in New York City with her grandmother. And it touches on 
things that are important. When I was working at Sylvia's place and I, you know, wanted to reemerge star, I felt it would have been appropriate. There were some clashes, not to say clashes, because I, you know, I still speak to my sister anyway, regardless of differences of opinions. But because utilizing the star name was an issue, I then began to create trans in action. And so, you know, we started, it was just the trans empowerment group. And I got it from the rest of the street girls that were on the street that what we should name the trans empowerment group. And we wanted to name it star. And we weren't too sure if the name was taken or even star existed. You know, so I did some research and it didn't, but somebody came to tell me otherwise. I knew the person. So that made it a plus, which is Mariah. She doesn't care. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the point of Star to me is, though, is to spread the message of what, you know, being trans and free is all about. And so, you know, when I started Trans in Action, you know, when we were struggling to find a name and, and Mariah had to come and let me know that she had Star, okay, you can use that and, you know, I'll take Trans in Action. But um, when I started doing Trans in Action and we would have the weekly groups and stuff, you know, we would, we would learn the history. That was one of the main components of Trans in Action was to know the history of Star and who Sylvia Rivera is. Because a lot of young people coming from different parts of the country didn't know. You know what I mean? So it was part of my duty to inform them who Sylvia Rivera Marshall McKenzie was. And at the time, coming up, I didn't really know or hear much information about Marsha. But as time progressed and I started to dig and, and, and really pay attention, like, these are the people. You know what I mean? It was just like, wow, there's just so much, so much that we're missing. We were in a documentary. It was called Queer Streets. And it highlighted myself and a few young people at the time from, um, from Sylvia's place. And after watching the final product and came, it was all of her logo. I was not satisfied with the final product. I think what was so troubling for me was that I get that it was supposed to be a hip and gritty look at the lives of LGBT youth on the streets of New York. But what it failed to do was to uplift and um, highlight the positive stuff that was going on at the time. You wanted the hip and gritty look, but you didn't experience the joy that through all that grittiness and shit that we had to endure, how we managed to stay afloat. Quick to find me, you know, talking to John's, but not my struggle in getting clean or finding meaningful work. Quick to show one of our trans sisters who's no longer here 
injecting, and then eventually overdosing. That drew the line in the sand for me. And I was disgusted at media because you started to see more of these trans stories pop up. And so I knew the Trans Health Conference was coming up and Scout, your friend, <laughs> introduced me to the Trans Health Conference years ago. Um, I had wrote a proposal for a workshop about trans and media. And um, I'm sitting there, I was struggling. Well, what am I going to present? What am I going to present? I started to make little PowerPoint collecting you know, I just don't want a PowerPoint. This is not going to be enough. A PowerPoint is not going to be enough. And so my friend JD, who worked on the Fenced Out um, documentary, I was like, you make documentaries. I want to make a documentary. You know, I want to make a documentary about trans and media. Like, I need to show people what it is, not in a PowerPoint presentation, but, you know, so we got to work. He gave me a camera. I did some interviews. I researched some girls that were on Jerry Springer. You know, got them to do some interviews. And then I was like, okay, I remember this. I remember this. And I remember this. And I'm going to come on. I want to see, like, you know, if we were flipping through the television. So I sat there and we were going through the thing and we created Trans and Media. And so I was so nervous and I didn't think or know how people were going to respond to it because I spoke to Vanessa. Was her name? I remember talking to her. She came up one time. It was during a Pride. And um, she's from Texas. And she said one of the ways is like you have to get the community riled up. Right? That's the only way to get their attention about anything. Right? So I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. So when I put all this together, and sat down, I was sitting here and I was like, okay, showing the violence. Showing how that violence perpetuates. You know, like, when you are in Jerry Springer or Maury Povich and people are shouting and yelling, Is it a man? <laughs> yeah, that really used to get under my skin. Because it happens to us when, you know, that perpetuates violence. So we did it in a way which it segues into news footage of trans women that have been murdered. This is what happens. This is, you know, all of this turns into this because it's transphobia. And then y'all never highlight any of the good stuff that we do. So I put in images of me in the community, you know, and like celebrities or like at the time Laverne Cox had just come out and, you know, so like, you know, or leaders within the community that are doing good. And so many people, like, I was so surprised. I was so shocked that when I get to the room, it was one of the biggest rooms in the, in, in the conference and the room was almost filled. And so that was another big moment for me. I didn't think that it would be so impactful. And so I, I, stayed on the course of changing this narrative of how trans people are perceived in media. And I was able to co-produce a film and acting has always been a passion of mine that I thought that I would never be able to achieve because I was trans. And now I'm doing it. 
So I'm happy for the time in which we live. And I'm also happy for the the things that that we have been through and experienced. And I got to see the old way and helping pave the way for the new. And I'm 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 proud of that now. I think now when I sit back and think about it and I'm at this particular age <laughs> that it was all worth it. Yeah. So you you've shared a lot and you you rush through lots of different phases of your life. We we have some time. Um, do you want to go back and and explore more of some of these pieces? Um like if, does anything stand out well um tell me about the uh how girls related to each other working the stroll and the meatpacking you both talked about friendships but also cattiness mm-hmm. uh tearing people apart and uh yeah tell me some about what the what the community was like what what the struggles were what the connections were <laughs> Well, in the meatpacking district in those days, I think we had some cohesion and we had a a code. You know, I think a lot of the time, like, you know, when we would stand on the corner and we would have conversations and kiki with one another, I would see that more than fighting and, and all this other stuff. We were very aware of what was going on. We looked out for each other then. I think... When, when, when the time started to change, you know, and, and, and it, it was, there was the Giuliani era for me, the Giuliani era, and then there was the Bloomberg era and they were two different things. I think, you know, Giuliani that started the quality of life laws and stuff. When we were on, when we started, we had to deal with protesters and such. You know, some that would follow us and taxis with signs to get to the Johns Point or whatever the case may be. And the police whooping through the thing and we would all be running and hiding under the cars or letting us, like letting each other know when Mag was out. Mag is like, you know, six precinct cops. That's what we used to call them back then. Mag. Do you know where the name comes from? Probably Magnum P.I. or something like that, you know, and it was different. It was a different time. And like, you know, the NYPD patrol cars were out there. They would just whoop, whoop around and scare us and we'd run around. Next thing you know, we're back at it again, you know, and sometimes you'll get pinched, but not as severely as when the Bloomberg ever hit. And I was just responding to a post about the Highline Park. And I was like, you know, a lot of trans women suffered for them to build that Highline Park. You know, and we've seen the effects of it. And as I told you, when we first started, a girl could come out. You could go out. I could leave the house at, say, 11 o'clock. I was back safe and sound home by, like, 1 a.m. You know? But as time progressed and uh, the quality of life laws started to sink in and Bloomberg and his initiatives, you know, you started to see those things take its toll. 
and it wasn't for the better. I think also, you know, after September 11th, I'll never forget that night. I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget it was me and Maria. And we were on Christopher and Greenwich Avenue. And we were looking at the smoke coming up out of the what's name. And I was like, girl, you know, this is a wrap, right? Like, it's done. Like, no dates. I'll start there. What was Maria's last name? I don't remember. <laughs> we just knew her as Maria. Yeah. Um, a lot of girls I don't know their last name. But um, I'll never forget that night and we were sitting there and we were just, it was me and her out there just looking. The weeks that followed, the weeks that followed, I had an ID from 16th Street, well, my street address was, well, because I lived there and there, so I kind of lived in the area. And so, it was hard to make money. I still don't know how I made it through after the, the September 11th attacks. I remember sleeping in alleyways and vestibules every night trying. And how I survived the dates. A lot of them were from coming up from the wreckage. Or they need some stress relief or sometimes even the officers. <sighs> That's how I survived. I think like it took a while for the stroll to recover after that. I mean, everybody at the time was struggling, trying to, and then they wouldn't let people be on the point if you didn't have an ID. It was a really, really hard time to struggle through, especially where the place of work is compromised and they're not letting anybody through. Was the meatpacking district in the part of the zone that was restricted mm -hmm. access? From 14th Street down. Yeah. And, um... It was a really dark time. Like, I can still remember the smell. I can still, like, hear the sirens and remember, like, at that time when I was, like, there was Safe Space, which was a, 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 another place for street youth. And I would go there in the mornings to shower and stuff, or sometimes get a bed. It depended. Like, it was an emergency place. And then, um, that's how I was able to eat and shower and get clothes and stuff. But going back to what's name to try to make a coin was just increasingly difficult. And sometimes I'm like, if I couldn't afford the movie theater, I would, you know, 
go into the buildings in Midtown and find a rooftop or something or a stairwell where I could keep warm. But it was really hard after 2001. And then when we started to see an influx, I'd say about the stroll recovered. And about like 2000, I, and I, I, well, I did. I spent about eight months on Rikers Island. So I missed a lot <laughs> of the street after that. And then um, when I got out, it was like 2000. Well, I was dealing with the crap from the, the court process. 2002 had already came. So 2002, eight months, 2003. Yeah. <sighs> uh, I'm trying to remember all the timelines. But, um, so it, it recovered, about, I'd say, about 2003, 2004. But it wasn't the same. The stroll never truly really recovered the same way after that. It was the girls, like I said, we used to come out. And we could be out for three hours and we made, you know, enough money to go back home early. And those times like 2003, four, five and beyond until it just was no more stroll. It was like girls would be out there until like eight o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning and still not catch a date. You know? What was the end of that time like? You said in 2005, there really wasn't a stroll anymore. Well, it was the intensity. Um, there was Operation Spotlight. Well, if you get, um, you know, three arrests for prostitution, they can charge you with a felony. And then with a felony charge, that's anything over a year. So they can um, send you away for over a year, you know. I, we call them bullets. So if you get a bullet for a year for prostitution, then, no, a bullet is the eight months. That's what I did. Anything over a bullet, over the 12 months, so like if you get a year and a day, you're going to go up north. And thankfully, I only got a bullet. So, I, you know, to stay on Rikers. Even though people are like, oh, it's so much better on on um up north. And it, no, I don't want to go there. I'll stay here and deal with this shit. So I can just get out and go home or back to the streets or whatever. But, um, yeah, and that's what they were doing. We would, the change in policing happened too, you know, and then they were starting or looking at building that highline shit. Excuse my language. <laughs> and so, you know, what it was is that, like, the police became more aggressive. It was no longer the squad cars. It was now deception and detectives and you know like it got crazier like you know they were in cabs and sometimes we made them the bum down the block and sometimes they would arrest us like for stupid shit and it's not even like when we learn how to fight because you know I, I remember A girl would take a plea to get out of jail or to get whatever time and be done with it as opposed to pleading not guilty on a case 
and then don't have bail money or support, and now you're just wasting away in jail, and and you don't know what is happening, you know? And so, that's how they would do it, you know? And loitering with the entity prostitute isn't necessarily a crime. And when, you know, as I've got assistance along the way in knowing that that is more like a violation than a crime, but with because of the quality of life. So a lot of, so they would try to pen anything they could on to get us off the streets. Whether it be, I just got off the subway station and now I'm being bagged for loitering with the intent to prostitute. Or because I spoke to three individuals, I'm now prostituting. But then it depends on what type of zone you're in. So if it's dubbed a prostitution zone, but there's a major transportation hub over there, I'm good in the major transportation hub. But if the major transportation hub and the prostitution zone, it's a whole jumbled mess. So you can get, you know, they would pin anything they could on me, trespassing, which, well, I think it almost likely was trespassing. But (laughs) that too is still only a violation and not. So this was an escalation of policing under Bloomberg mm-hmm. yeah, that, that Where, was trying to clear out right. the straw. Like there was the quality of life laws under Giuliani, but under Bloomberg and when he his, how he dealt with sex workers in general was Operation Spotlight. And you mentioned the High Line, which was a part of the whole real estate redevelopment. of yeah. the Manhattan District. When, uh, did you have a sense of those things being connected? Yes. Yes, I did. Because they had just started to, like, develop some of the High Line. Like, they were looking into it. The High Line opened officially in, like, like the bottom part. Like, they were slowly building it throughout the years into what it is now, you know? But that was the plan from the get-go. You know, when they do development and stuff, you know, that's what they do. The whole gentrification of the meatpacking district was on schedule. You know what I mean? Get the hookers out. And, you know, let's build our shit. So that that is why, you know, that man's a businessman. And I'm sure he made his little deals or whatever the case may be. So, you know, it's get rid of all the prostitutes now. They were trying for years to get rid of us, you know, like the protesters with the signs and stuff. But this was active. Like, this was an ongoing, onslaught. Like, I could go to jail for, like, 90 days, come home, have no means. Go for a stroll. Next thing, boop. And then you're in for another 45 days. So tell me about Rutgers Island. What was it like for you? Uh, It depends. It depends. You know, like, sometimes you, you have a choice. Either you can sign into a special housing unit where they house LGBT people. Yeah. Or, um, in that time they called it homo house. Or you can do general population. And sometimes I was on the fence on what I should be doing. Should I go to special housing or should I go to, you know, general population? You know, it was like a roll your dice and see what you get. You know? And so, when you go to special housing, it was, you know, you know, trans girls were there and guys who would sign in or whatever. Yeah, that's another thing I want to touch on. There was a time where, like, gangs were infiltrating the homo housing unit. 
and, you know, saying that they were gay so that they can get preferential treatment. Like, you know, they don't have to go to the, you know, the main mess hall of who was brought to them. They can find a lover for that matter. And just, it was different, you know, and the girls would sometimes fight over guys. And this is nothing new, like, you know, that's usually why the girls start fighting and why we don't have unity with one another is because we start fighting over trade. Trade is always in the middle of why the girls would fall out, you know? And um, there was a time where it got really, really bad where a particular gang was just took over and, yeah. And some incidences happened and, oh, excuse me, I remember all of that. But, um, so then I was conflicted of, do I deal with the drama of the housing, you know, the social housing, or do I go into general population? And sometimes general population would be a better situation, you know? But the eight months that I spent there, I mean, you know, I was with some girls, and one of them I still know of to this day. Um, for the most part, it was peaceable. You know, they give you a little job or something. You know, I was talking to a CEO. He would bring me Newports and 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 oils. <laughs> and then, um, but yeah, I survived. And you mentioned um, buying uh, meals for people with food stamps. Mm-hmm. What was your interface with HRA and the sort of welfare system like? <sighs> I mean, I really, you know, I'm homeless. Um, I need food stamps. Um, and that's it. Yeah. Like, I never needed that much from them. You know, in terms of, like, I, I always consider myself to be a worker bee. So, the coins I did make sufficed. Having the food stamps was... A crucial part of survival you know and so when young people were hungry or they didn't have access to things because their identification or something you know I was just like well let's go have a picnic and I would you know we would have picnics and stuff and then my homegirl Deidre she was work she started working there a few months before me and um so she would make breakfast in the morning and um so I would go in the mornings to go get breakfast. Hey, this is at Sophia's place, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when I got there, though, it was, you know, when I walked through the door and, and seeing Kate after so many so much time, you know, and then being reintroduced to JD and, you know, seeing JD. And JD was a major part of my cleanup process. I. What was their last name? Melendez. Yeah. yeah. And he was a major part in my cleanup process. And I didn't skip over him. I mentioned him about Transmedia, but I didn't skip over JD. But, um, this is going to make me cry again. <laughs> but, um, yeah. When JD, JD was of the younger group of young people after I left. Like, they were at that time, they were all like 16, 17 years old. And I was just turning 21 and aging out. Five years had passed since I seen everybody and stuff. 
and JD was working. But at the time, Sylvia's place had extensions too. There was Sylvia's place and there was Carmen's place. And JD was working over at Carmen's place. And, you know, JD picking me up in my first few years of working at Sylvia's place. Like, if it wasn't for JD, I wouldn't have had my first apartment. If it wasn't for JD, I would have still been in the street. JD, before I started working there, like when I had this date up in Harlem, JD would drive me to the date and wait for me to get out of the date and then drive me back down to Sylvia's place, you know? And JD has been a major part in like getting my shit together. And sometimes we fight and sometimes we argue, but you know, it is what it is. You know, and he, he was, you know, and, um, yeah, he helped pick me up in the times where I needed someone the most, and it's just so funny how, how life happens that way. Because I remember he always calls me out, like, when I was at Project Reach and he was one of, and I was, like, the facilitator and he was, he was contemplating transitioning. And I had said something that was problematic, but keeping space for trans folk. And I didn't know at the time that JD was identifying as trans. So when he said it, I was dismissive and he he never lets me live it down to this day. But, you know. (laughs) But, um, yeah. So you've talked about a number of different um, service centers um, that you spent time in, the New Neutral Zone and the Covenant House and the Covenant House, what was it, the ROP? Rites of Passage. Rites of Passage, yeah. And um, Sylvia's Place, where you spent a lot of time. What were some of the ways that the culture and policies and community at those places varied? Like, how are they different from each other? Well, um, Neutral Zone was run by GVHYC, Greenwich Village Youth Council. And um, I guess it was, like, fine. Like, I mean, the counselors in there were members of the community. Like, Jenny, she had worked... At Nyapak beforehand, I remember Shira. Um, some young people were that went on to positions. We were probably young people that had utilized services. So there was a lot of youth-run organizing going on. You know, the same model was implemented at Project Reach, with, or so we believed, which was a youth-led or youth-led organization. That's what Fierce became also, was youth-led organizing. So we had a lot of um, say-so on things and matters, like who gets hired, who gets fired, you know, things like that. Like if they were adult staff or whatever the case may be. As for um, rites of passage, that was, in, in Covenant House, that was a Catholic organization. And we had to deal and grapple with a lot of politics stuff in there. You know, like I remember like, you know, Elizabeth going off because, you know, of how they would treat trans people. 
And I remember she was so vocal that eventually they started to consider having trans people or trans women in particular on the women's floor. You know, that became an option for some, you know, um, and just advocating because like, you know, when I, you know, I was more of the girl, like, just tell them you're working because that's how I got by. Because now they're like looking at us like, oh, you're sex working. You're not supposed to be doing that. You can't stay here. Elizabeth was a little bit more vocal in terms of what exactly the situation was. Whereas I was more sweep it under the rug, girl, be quiet or we'll get kicked out. And I'm just going to give them money to shut them up until they get out my business. You know what I mean? So I was more of that type of person as opposed to, you know, what I'm advocating for. You know, I just didn't want, you know because we are sex working and we're not supposed to, that we all end up getting thrown out. But it ended up working to our advantage anyway. You know what I mean? So, you know, raising that, and I'm sure Covenant House has grappled with, you know, sex work before. You know what I mean? In terms of, like, young people and sex work and those issues, you know? And um, you haven't mentioned race very much. I imagine most of the the people in your story were black and Latino. Latinx. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the racial demographics and how racism shaped people's lives and what that, how the community, what were there white people in the story and and there are white people yeah. in the story. Kate Barnhart is white and she's Jewish. Um, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, but there's I, a lot about this community that was really shaped by black and Latino women. Right. Yeah. I think like like the old way, like in thinking about like the, it was still there was, you know, I remember we used to laugh because we were on seventeenth Street and this is when Chelsea became the new budding gay neighborhood. Yeah. And seeing the muscle queens and stuff and it was like a culture shock for us because here we are, we're like slender, young and trans and then we had these we were key that the that these gay men sound more womanly than we do and they got more muscles we were like really he sounds more womanly than we do like what is going on you know and that was like being exposed to that culture so deeply because we were in in chelsea but um dynamics i remember one time around the corner from Coffee Grind, and I stopped working there because I got canned because I told you that white child said I was having a party and got me fired, and she ended up in my job. You know what I mean? And they weren't, they weren't even trans. They were just drag queen at the time. I don't, I don't know what she identifies as now, but yeah. But one of the issues that I had, and I remember the, you know, staff in the neutral zone was helping me in this process was Cap Florent around the corner. He was on uh, Davenport. Florent. Um, and it was owned by a gay, gay man. And I went in there one night, and I was a sex worker, but I don't even think I was really sex working that night. Sometimes I would be on the stroll, to be honest, because that's... We all know the village it was a mecca for LGBT young people to congregate, period. You know what I mean? So... It's just to hit the scene to see what happens, whatever happens, happens, you know? 
So it was kind of cool that night. And I wanted French onion soup. I liked French onion soup. I had ordered French onion soup from there before. So I was like, oh, I like their French onion soup. Cheat meal, you know. I like the cheese and stuff in it, you know, and it tastes really good. So I'm going to go there and go get me some French onion soup. Now, mind you, I'm in jeans and a bubble jacket and just regular. I go in there to ask for soup. And I goes like, I want one. I'm not going to serve you. But I'm sitting here. And I'm like, what do you mean you're not going to serve me? Like, I was taken aback. I was like, okay. And I get heated pretty quickly. I'm, I'm not quickly, but if it doesn't make absolute sense to me, then I'm going to be a little agitated. So I'm just like, okay, but why are you not going to serve me soup? And I was like, I could take this one or two ways. You know, like, and I hope, you know, I'm like, what is your reason for not serving Wait, what's the other, I mean, why wouldn't you be offended? Like, that's outrageous. Right. Right. So, But I wanted to hear his rationale as to why he's not going to serve me. I'm out of onions. I, I was hoping that was why. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't. Yeah. And so, like, he's all like, um, well, we're told not to serve you. And, you know, knowing that I already worked in the area, I pretty much had a broad idea of what the fuck he meant. <laughs> but, like, you know, so I'm saying, I was like, so you're not going to know. And now I'm all a- activated and stuff now because, you know, I know people at this point. And so I'm like, so I'm going to take this one or two ways. You're not going to serve me because I'm black. Or you're not going to serve me because I'm trans. Which one is it? Pick one. And so he's like, I'm not, we don't serve your kind. Okay, you don't serve my kind. What is my kind, sweetie? What is my kind? And he's like, you know, you girls, you come in here and... You know, you're pulling tricks in my bathroom. I was like, did I pull a trick in your bathroom? Did you see me come in here? Pull? I just asked you for some French onion soup. Do you see me with anybody else other than myself? Have you seen me personally come in here and pull a trick? So why the fuck can't you serve me soup? Oh, get out of here, you bitch. Da-da. Okay. Okay. I'll be back here, ass. So I went and told people at the Nutrison and GBYC. And I remember Jenny, she went and we, we called them out and held them accountable. We went to a whole legal proceeding and everything, you know, about litigating against them in order to change your policies against, you know, allowing trans people. So then the policy was like to have trans people work in your store. I needed a job, but if that was your policy, I don't want to work for you. You know? And, you know, I seen this little thing on him now. Like, I think he opened up the frying pan, which I love. I love the frying pan. You know, I really loved Florent. But your policy was problematic as fuck. You know? And so dealing with those things, like, you know, just Chelsea in general, like, you know, looking down on us because we were trans, you know, kids of color. You know what I mean? Like, not wanting to the bar, not to serve one. Another incident where Elizabeth, we were at Tiffany's. And it was the owner. I don't know if the owner was gay or not or whatever, but I asked for a, we were transitioning and I had asked for an application. And he started acting funny style. And then him and Elizabeth got into this big old fight in the middle of Tiffany's about him being discriminatory. And I remember Wilson Cruz from, from, um, 
my so-called life. <laughs> Stop the fight. Like, I'm just gagging. They're fighting. I'm trying to, like, and then he comes, he was sitting across everything, he jumps over, and he breaks up the fight and stuff. And it was just crazy. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing Anderson Cooper running around in the Chelsea area at that time, too. I remember I, I, we went to see this movie with me and my homegirl, Brandy, and we went to the 19th, 19th Street Theater, and Anderson Cooper was there with his Ben Boo or something. And then um, afterwards, getting his autograph, and he wrote on a piece of paper, we have to stop meeting like this. Chelsea was cute, but, like, there was. There was not really, like, unless... We know it was becoming, like, the the new gayborhood. And stuff, and everybody there that has money or whatever the case may be, but we never really felt like we fit in into that. Like, you know, we had 14th Street, we had the Meatpacking District, that was our area and stuff. And people knew that at the time. Like, you know, back then, you know, you would just see hundreds of girls out there. That is where all you would see all the transsexuals back then was on 14th Street, between 14th Street and Christopher Street going on down. That was just, and you know, and then as the years, you would see that it began to dwindle. You would only see a handful of girls, and it would be here, there, or somewhere else. But, like, when I was coming up, you know, like, the first time I saw the stroll was the winter of 97. The first time, like, and then when I started to look for its name, I never went to that part of 14th Street. Like, I would walk down Jane Street, but there weren't really that many girls for some reason. Or I was just so in front of the hotel that I never paid attention to it until I was actually, like, you know, in it, in it, you know? But, like, oh, God. The Meatpacking District, when I think about it now, is just... I remember that episode was being filmed with Samantha throwing the water on the girls and how I used to think, well, I want, you know... I didn't want to be the girl to get the water thrown on her, but I wanted to be in the episode. You know what I mean? And I sat there and I watched them film that whole thing. What was this? Sex and the City. Ah, uh, yeah. I remember uh, Rosie Perez and the girls were getting at her one night. She had parked her car and she was on Horatio Street. And um, she comes out or whatever. She's walking and the girls start saying something about her. And, and we're talking smack about her. And I was like, don't be talking about Rosie like that. You know, I was like, ew. And that's Rosie Perez. And I started dancing. And we were kind of like dancing and stuff. And, you know, the girls were like, whatever, girl. But, you know, when the area started to gentrify, it turned into a little celebrity thing. It became a little hot spot and stuff. And you'd see them all running around drunk or stuff through the cobblestones. And, of course, there was no room for us. They were pushing us out of our area, and a lot of us were ending up in jail. And then you see the effects of that. You really see the effects of all of that. And I'm sitting here, and I'm replaying it on my mind. Like with Body Yachty Josie, for example, she was healthy, beautiful. Then when you know the 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 onslaught war against us, you know, was I ended up seeing her in a box. In the corner. A lot of girls had built up this, 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 this box castle. And they were living out of that. Trying to make ends meet because the money was just not there no more. And everybody struggling for the same damn John. 
some girls didn't make it through because they couldn't, you know, make ends meet or had to do other things or were killed. It was really terrible. And I think like, you know, from the time when I had first started to the time of like the, the end demise of that stroll, there was a big difference of how it related to us too. Like, like I tell you, when we started, we were happy, we we're making coins and stuff. Now I'm strung out on drugs. I look crazy, you know, barely eating and surviving, you know? And it's funny how the tables can turn just like that. Just like that. And then it was like, I just can't, like, live. I remember pantyhose. I wonder what happened to her. Pantyhose was an old queen. She was from, she was from the back in the days, back in the days. And at that time, she had already been like 50-something years old. So I know she was from the old days, you know? And just when I'm standing out there talking to pantyhose and stuff, and you know, that was the one of the things is getting the insight or getting the, the, the news, the street news from the girls. Like, what's going on here tonight? It's mag out, you know? Or like what they saw downtown or something, you know? And they relay the message and you got sort of like a word of mouth news source, you know? And I'm looking at pantyhose, and I'm just sitting there saying, girl, you're like 50-something years old. And you've been doing this a very long time. And, and it just wasn't in me. I, I'm like, and, and this is our life. I'm like, I didn't want this. I didn't, this is not, this is not going to make me happy. And this is where they put us. You know what I mean? It's not like, you know, we want to live this lifestyle like this, it's where they put us because they don't give us any other options or choices to be who we are or to grow. And at the time I was, God, at that time I had already been 28 years old. And I was like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be out here like pantyhose at this age. You know? So tell me about your life these days. It's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. Um, it has been officially, what, two and a half years since I left Sylvia's place. Um, I lost my job. I was working for Iris House last year. But um, contract struggles and my dreams getting in the way, to be honest. Um, I had... Did uh, the film already. I was starting to book a little bit more gigs and stuff and maybe getting a little excitable and considering my, my passions and my dreams and, you know, so I kind of been trying to take on those things. Just some avail. Could be better. Still need a part-time job or something. <laughs> I hear acting is hard to make a living. Yeah, yeah. Are, are any particular gigs that you've done that you want to share about? Um, which one can I talk about? Let's see. Um, well, there's the Garden Left Behind. I touched on that already. I have a small role as an activist, but I'm also the co-producer. Um. 
I did this one thing called Sex. It was a pilot episode for a YouTube series with uh, Peter Green. That was cute. Um, and he's like, he plays the villain and like everything when I was growing up and like The Mask and like a few other movies. Um, I'm trying to figure out what I can talk about right now. Um, I can't really talk about them right now. No problem. <laughs> and what's your living situation these days? Um, my living situation these days is I live in a collective house with a keto who you mentioned earlier and Elizabeth who I mentioned earlier and um, a few other folks. I think it's a bit challenging for me. Um, in terms of, um, somewhat be, being somewhat codependent, I was living, here's one thing I did skip over, I was living in the Bronx with my dog and my boyfriend, um, and we were there for five going on six years, um, and this is during the time I was working at Sylvie's Place. So I had learned to be very independent. You know? Um, so being in a collective house for me is a little bit jarring because I don't have as much privacy and things or things that I would like. Plus, I'm not in a financial situation to complain. And these people took me in. You know what I mean? However... I do dreams of living alone with my dog again, <laughs> you know, like the Bronx was a tragedy for me. I'm not going to get into too many details, but it was a bad breakup. Um, my dog ended up missing and I had to get out of the Bronx, you know, um, and so over the past year of like trying to forge a career, pick up the pieces of all of that, you know, because when you live with somebody for a long period of time, you're accustomed to certain things, especially when you're in a relationship with someone. And this year has been a whole process of healing. But in that process, you know, like of healing and learning myself and learning to, to live with myself and stuff, you know, other things happen, you know, and then you now have to deal and process that, you know. I think as I'm moving forward, though, I think like, you know, yes, I'm, I, I'm where I'm at and I'm somewhat stable but not comfortable. I'm working towards being comfortable and being able to, I like being independent. I want to continue to be independent. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out ways now to regain my sovereignty. <laughs> uh, was there anything else that you wanted to share about that you haven't had a chance to talk about? I'm hungry. 
<laughs> yeah. My but, stomach is growling. I don't know. Let's, let's wrap up then. On a, do, maybe we could close out with where um, do you hope your life will go in the next couple of years? In the next couple of years, I just want to be comfortable. I just want to do the things that I want to do. And I'm starting to sound like a, like a record because, you know, I said this 10, 12 years ago now in Queer Streets about how, you know, I want to do the things that I want to do. And I've been doing them. Still not satisfied yet. I think I just want to get to a place where I can eventually find bliss. That everything isn't a crisis situation where everything isn't, you know, I just want to be centered and 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 not always be on alert. I want to have the ability to rest and relax without feeling bad about doing so. You know, I want to I want to live life to the fullest. You know? And not have things weigh on me and impede on that happiness that's what everyone deserves yeah thank you Kristen thank this you it's been very moving really appreciated it very much thank you <laughs>